You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope you had a great week. I am fresh-ish off the plane from visiting my dad for a week to help out with two curmudgeony dogs and one psychotic puppy while my mom and sister gallivanted off on a vacation. The puppy has rendered my right arm black and blue because she has giant feet that she uses to dig into your skin for attention, which honestly is an improvement over the open wounds I left with the last couple times I visited. This week for Two Sentence Movie Reviews of movies I saw in a movie theater, we've got Venom, There Will Be Carnage. Yes, I know it's been out forever, but I didn't have a car for a month and just saw it this week, and due to travel, I have not gotten to see Eternals yet. This is the first Marvel film I haven't seen on opening day in years, and I'm just a little bit bummed about it. But anyway, Venom There Will Be Carnage is the sequel to the 2018 film Venom, and at 90 minutes, it is one of the shortest comic book movies you'll ever see, which honestly works to its detriment. This movie is... It's just not great. There isn't enough flushed out. It feels very rushed. And the performances are incredibly wooden, which is weird considering director Andy Serkis is himself an actor. The climax felt lazy and relied on a lot of tropes from other better movies of the comic book genre. If you like the character Venom, I think you'll like this, but I didn't really like this movie that much. Anyway, on to this week's topic. Well, this month's topic. This month, we're trying something new, but that I think will be fun. Let me know if you like this. I tried it out on a three-weeker, just so we're not stuck with this for a month if it doesn't work. So let me know. Remember when you were in history class and had to learn about something from a book, didn't read that book, and opted to watch a movie about it instead? Remember how that bit you in the ass because the movie was nothing like what happened? Well, worry no more, because we're covering the history of three historical figures, the most prevalent biopic that exists about their life, the making of that film, and of course, break down the difference between fact from fiction within the film. This week, we're covering the most famous woman ever to rule over ancient Egypt and its last pharaoh, Cleopatra VII, better known just by Cleopatra. Today, we'll discover the life of the real woman, the disastrous production of the 1963 film Cleopatra and how it nearly bankrupted a studio, and the differences between history and the film. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Caesar, as quickly as possible, you must set me alone on the throne of Egypt. My mission here is to put to an end the tiresome squabbling between your brother and you. You're not a fool, or are you? Immodestly, perhaps, no. You've seen my brother and listened to him and the truly evil man to whom he belongs? Yes. Shall we agree, you and I, upon what Rome really wants, has always wanted of Egypt? Corn, grain, treasure. It's the old story. Roman greatness, 
built upon Egyptian riches. You shall have them. You shall have them all and in peace. But there is only one way. My way. Make me queen. Cleopatra was born in 69 BCE, the daughter of Ptolemy XII and an unknown mother. Both were direct descendants of the Ptolemaic dynasty founder, Ptolemy I, whom was a Macedonian Greek and a general for Alexander the Great. The dynasty began when Ptolemy took over as ruler of Egypt after Alexander's death. His descendants would rule for the next three centuries, and at its height, Ptolemaic Egypt was one of the world's great superpowers. Rulers of the Ptolemaic dynasty, the 33rd and final dynasty of ancient Egypt, resided primarily in Alexandria and spoke ancient Greek, refusing to learn the language of the ancient Egyptians. Cleopatra was an exception to the latter, opting to learn several languages by the time she reached adulthood, including ancient Egyptian. Sources say she knew as many as 12 languages. In 51 BCE, Cleopatra's father passed away, leaving the throne to the 18-year-old and her brother, 10-year-old Ptolemy XIII. It was likely that the two siblings married, as was customary at the time. Incest was the norm in a world obsessed with pure bloodlines, 1900 years removed from Gregory Mendel and the discovery of genetics. Soon after they assumed power, complications arose between Cleopatra and her husband brother. Eventually, she fled to Syria, where she assembled an army to declare the throne for herself. In 48 BCE, she returned to Egypt with her military might and faced her brother at Pelusium, located on the empire's eastern edge. Meanwhile, a civil war between military leaders Julius Caesar and Pompey was raging in Rome. Pompey eventually sought refuge in Egypt, but on orders by Ptolemy XIII was killed. In pursuit of Pompey, Caesar followed him to Egypt, where he met and eventually fell in love with Cleopatra. With Caesar eating out of the palm of her hand, Cleopatra now had access to enough military might to kick her brother-husband's ass and claim her throne as the sole ruler of Egypt. Caesar defeated his girlfriend's brother-husband's army at the Battle of the Nile and restored Cleopatra to the throne. In 47 BCE, Cleopatra maybe bore Caesar a son, whom she named Caesarian. Caesar never acknowledged the boy as his own, and there is wide historic debate as to whether or not Caesar was actually the daddy. Cleopatra, now the queen bee, would eventually follow Caesar back to Rome, but return to Egypt in 44 BC following his assassination. In 41 BCE... Mark Antony, part of the second triumvirate that ruled Rome following the murder of Caesar, sent for Cleopatra so that she could answer questions about her allegiance to the empire's fallen leader. Cleopatra agreed to this request and made a lavish entrance into the city of Tarsus, Sicilia. Like Caesar, Antony was lovestruck and soon found himself doing the horizontal mambo with his dead buddy's lady. The duo would have three children, twins Alexander Helios and Cleopatra Selene, and son Ptolemy Philadelphus. Only Cleopatra Selene would see adulthood. Like Caesar, Antony was involved in a battle over Rome's control. His rival was Caesar's great-nephew, Gaius Octavius, also known as Octavian, a.k.a. the soon-to-be emperor Caesar Augustus. 
Octavian was also a member of the Second Triumvirate. Antony, whom presided over the eastern part of Rome, believed Cleopatra would supply financial and military support to secure his own rule over the Roman Empire. Cleopatra had her own motivations for helping him as well. In exchange for her help, she sought the return of Egypt's eastern empire, which included large areas of Lebanon and Syria, returned to them. It did not go their way. In 34 BCE, Antony returned with Cleopatra to Alexandria with major pomp and circumstance. Crowds swarmed to catch a glimpse of the power couple and their children seated on thrones that were elevated on silver platforms. Antony antagonized his rival by declaring Caesarian as Caesar's real son and legal heir rather than Octavian, whom had been adopted. Octavian fought back, declaring he'd seized Antony's will and told the Roman people that Antony had turned over Roman possessions to Cleopatra and was planning to make Alexandria the Roman capital. In 31 BCE, Cleopatra and Antony combined armies to try to defeat Octavian in a raging sea battle at Actium off Greece's west coast. The clash, however, proved to be a costly defeat for the lovers, forcing Antony and Cleopatra to separately flee back to Egypt. Octavian claimed Athens and eventually Alexandria, taking their children hostage. Cleopatra attempted to find a way for her to escape from Egypt, possibly to India, to lick her wounds. She was beginning to view Mark Antony as a liability to her cause and planned to leave without him. Meanwhile, Antony, believing Cleopatra to be dead, killed himself. Cleopatra followed by also committing suicide, supposedly by being bitten by an asp, although the actual implement is unknown. After her death on August 12th, 30 BCE, Cleopatra was buried alongside Antony in an as-of-yet-unknown location. Following Cleopatra's death, Egypt became a province of the Roman Empire. Today, the life of Cleopatra has captivated people the world over. She was a powerful woman in an era that saw leadership roles dominated basically completely by men. During her reign, Cleopatra held the country of Egypt together and proved to be as powerful a leader as any of her male counterparts. And for that, she has been commemorated in all manner of art forms, including several motion pictures, which chose to focus on her love life more than her brilliant mind. But what about the most famous of the Cleopatra films? Well, dear listeners, that is an epic tale all its own. I am... Marcus Antonius. I know who you are. What are you at the moment? Envoy of Rome, proconsul of all the Roman Empire to the east of Italy. An impressive title. Worthy, perhaps, of a private audience. Without a treaty of alliance with Egypt, you could not hold the territories under your command. True? Possibly. Then, Lord Antony, you come before me as a suppliant. If you choose to regard me as such. I do. You will therefore assume the position of a suppliant before this throne. You will kneel. I will what? On your knees. Before 20th Century Fox in the late 1950s, early 60s, had ever decided to make a film about Cleopatra, several others had made their own. In fact, 13 known films had been made about or featuring Cleopatra from the birth of film to that point. It all started with Walter Wanger, a film producer whom had come up in the industry working for Paramount and Columbia. 
he had wanted to make a film about the life of Cleopatra since he had been at college. After leaving Columbia, Wanger tried to crack it as an independent producer. He shopped his Cleopatra project all over town, even pitching it to renowned producer Michael Todd and his wife Elizabeth. Elizabeth Taylor, that is. Now, if you remember from the Elizabeth Taylor episode of My Love is Dead series, Michael Todd was an uber-successful film producer due to be an Oscar winner if his film Around the World in 80 Days went the distance. Unfortunately, before Todd could decide whether or not he'd make the film, he died in a plane crash in 1957, leaving his wife devastated, but soon to marry her husband's bestie, Eddie Fisher, which is a whole other story. Meanwhile, over at 20th Century Fox, 1958 had been a financial nightmare. Their three most expensive films that even I had never heard of tanked real hard at the box office. In an attempt to not go totally bankrupt, Spiro Skaras, then president of 20th Century Fox, had requested for studio executive David Brown to find a project that would be a quote-unquote big picture. Brown subsequently suggested a remake of Cleopatra from 1917, which had starred one of the biggest actresses of the day, Theda Barra, and had been a huge hit for them back in the day. In the fall of 1958, Wanger's production company entered into a co-production agreement with 20th Century Fox. He pitched four potential projects, including Cleopatra. Eventually, Fox would pick up three of the four Wanger pitched, with Cleopatra being the first to enter production. Spoiler alert, the other two will never get made. On September 15th, Wanger purchased the screen rights to Carlo Mario Franzero's biography, The Life and Times of Cleopatra, on which he planned to base the script. Two weeks later, Wanger had his first meeting with Scurris. Scurris had had his secretary go into the archives to retrieve the original 1917 Cleopatra script. Quote, all this needs is a little rewriting, he told Wanger. Just give me this over again and we'll make a lot of money. When going over the screenplay, however, Wanger found that the script had been written for a silent film, which meant it mostly only mentioned camera setups, making it widely useless. In modern films, screenwriters are generally discouraged from putting in any camera angles into the script. Ludie Clare, a former actress turned screenwriter, was hired in December 1958 to compose a rough draft of the script. Four months later, English author Nigel Balkin was hired to write another script draft. These were the first two of a cavalcade of screenwriters that would take a whack at writing this freaking movie. Wanger approached horror master Alfred Hitchcock to direct Cleopatra, but he passed, and that was probably a good call on his part. Scurris eventually selected Reuben Mammalian to direct. Wanger and Mammalian had previously worked together on Applause, which had released in 1929. A production budget of $2 million was agreed upon as casting began. This was during the star system, and several of Fox's talent roster, including Joanne Woodward and Joan Collins, were considered for the titular role. Wanger didn't really like any of the choices Fox offered, wanting someone a bit more, in his words, quote, opulent and voluptuous. It would be Balkan's script that would eventually reach Elizabeth Taylor, who Wanger still very much wanted to play the part. She was not a fan of the script. Dale Wasserman was then hired to complete the final draft of the script. Wanger instructed him to focus all attention on Cleopatra as the main character to entice Taylor to the role. Wasserman had never met Elizabeth Taylor, but watched her prior films to acquaint himself with her acting style. In the spring of 1960, English novelist Lawrence Durrell was hired to do yet another script rewrite. 
Mammalian, meanwhile, was on his own crusade to find his Cleopatra, at one point even offering the part to Dorothy Dandridge during a lunch meeting, which was an unofficial offer, so it never went anywhere. In September 1959, Wenger had contacted Taylor again. This is while Wasserman was still doing the script. And Taylor agreed to only do the project if she was paid a record-setting amount of $1 million plus 10% of the box office gross. This was unheard of at the time. On October 15th, a contract signing event was staged, with Taylor signing blank papers as the real contract would not be ready for months. They wanted her record-setting payday to start hype for the film a year before cameras would ever even roll. On July 28, 1960, Taylor signed her real contract. It was also stipulated that the film would be shot in Europe and in the Todd AO format, which had been developed by the late Michael Todd, which ensued that Taylor would receive additional royalties. In August 1960, Stephen Boyd and Peter Finch were cast as Mark Antony and Julius Caesar, respectively. Keith Baxter was cast as Octavian. Shooting was set to start at Pinewood Studios in London on September 28, 1960. London had offered the production mad incentives to shoot there, so long as the production agreed to hire a primarily English crew. Exteriors, however, were planned to shoot in Turkey. This had actually been the backup plan, as earlier in 1960, Buddy Adler, the head of production at 20th Century Fox, had entered into a co-production deal with Italian producer Lionello Santi, who had recently completed a foreign language film of Cleopatra, which the studio purchased to keep off the American market. In exchange, Santi would get to be a part of the 20th Century Fox film. Mammalian traveled to Italy to undergo location scouting and reported back that it would actually be pretty difficult to shoot there. Not only that, Rome was the site of the Summer Olympics that year. Majorly jumping the gun, on April 20th, 1960, Santi issued a full-page ad in Variety announcing his forthcoming production of Cleopatra. The only problem was he didn't mention 20th Century Fox involvement. Angered, Adler moved the entire production to Pinewood Studios. Wenger had cautioned about shooting in England, issuing a memo dated July 15th that the weather conditions could jeopardize Taylor's health, she had lifelong issues with her lungs, and that he didn't believe there was a strong enough production crew available there. Management at 20th Century Fox overruled his decision. Early in production, Taylor had shot a scene in 40-degree weather, which for those of us who call L.A. home might as well be the Arctic in the middle of the winter, and fell sick with a sore throat, meaning she couldn't report to set for two weeks. Mammalian was forced to shoot around the character of Cleopatra in the film Cleopatra, so that couldn't have been terribly easy. Taylor's sore throat soon became a persistent fever, and for the next few weeks, she was treated by several doctors, including Queen Elizabeth's personal physician. On November 13th, Taylor's fever had reached 103 degrees, and she was ultimately diagnosed with meningitis. By November 19th, the film was put on hold indefinitely, notifying studio employees of their layoff until Taylor got better. Taylor remained hospitalized for a week, after which she flew to Palm Springs, Florida with her husband, Eddie Fisher, for some much-needed R&R. The insurance agency Lloyd's of London would pay $2 million to cover Taylor's medical expenses. 
Because no one had been super stoked on how the script ended up, during the pause in filming, Nanali Johnson was hired to write a new script for the film. He wrote a 75-page draft for the first half of the film, mostly involving Cleopatra and Julius Caesar, which was supportedly similar in tone to Cleopatra from 1934, which had been produced by Cecil B. DeMille, and Caesar and Cleopatra from 1945. Mammalian didn't like it. Taylor then appealed for Patty Chayefsky to write a new screenplay, who claimed that a rewrite would take six months. By this time, 20th Century Fox completely shut down production. After 16 weeks of filming and costs upwards of $7 million, far beyond what they'd wanted to spend in total, Mammalian had managed to produce just 10 minutes of film, none of which featured the character of Cleopatra. Scurris made Mammalian the fall guy for the production going over budget and etc., and on January 18, 1961, Mammalian resigned as director. To replace him, Elizabeth Taylor would only approve one of two directors, both of whom she'd worked with before. The job would eventually go to Joseph L. Mankiewicz, whom she had worked with on Suddenly Last Summer, which released in 1959. At first, Mankiewicz turned down the offer, but after having a meeting with Skouris and his agent, he agreed to write and direct the project. What's that, like six, seven screenwriters for this one script so far? I'm not gonna lie, I lost track, and I ain't going back to look. As an additional incentive for directing, Skouris paid $3 million to acquire Figaro Inc., Mankiewicz's independent production company, in addition to his agreed-upon salary as writer and director. Mankiewicz had some prior experience with this general subject, as he had directed Julius Caesar, which released in 1953. Mankiewicz was displeased with the current state of the script, stating it was quote-unquote unreadable and unshootable. Further, Mankiewicz described Cleopatra's depiction as, quote, a strange, frustrating mixture of an American soap opera virgin and a hysterical Slavic vamp of the type Nazimova used to play. This was why he asked to rewrite the script from scratch. The studio gave him two whole months to do so. He ended up getting a lot more, but I'm getting ahead of myself. By February 1961, Mankiewicz had more or less outlined his version of Cleopatra, which he described as a, quote, modern, psychiatrically rooted concept of a film. Within a month, two further writers joined Mankiewicz's team. Story conferences would be held between the three writers, which was then followed up by his two other writers separately writing story step outlines. Mankiewicz would then take those outlines and expand them into the new script he would consult with relevant sources, adapting historical literature from, in his words, Plutarch, Petronius, and others, whose accounts were the most trusted sources of the day in regards to the life of Cleopatra. By April, Mankiewicz had grown displeased with his other two writer dudes' work on the whole, and Mankiewicz then petitioned for two playwrights to help him feature the script, but Wenger hired screenwriter Randall McDougall instead. At this point, filming was set to resume on April 4th, 1961, nearly seven months after shooting had initially started. But that didn't happen, as on March 4th, Taylor was hospitalized again for pneumonia this time. She only recovered due to a tracheotomy being performed. At one point, several newspapers even reported that she had died. She had not. On March 14th, 20th Century Fox suspended production at Pinewood Studios once more. The sets were dismantled at a cost of $600,000. Scurris then decided to relocate the production to the studio's backlot in California, which was 
way cheaper. Meanwhile, Mankiewicz suspended his writing duties to scout for filming locations in Rome and Egypt. Frankly, the lack of communication between all these dudes is just astounding to me. I guess, was this life before cell phones or just a bunch of egos just hit button heads? I don't know, but here we go. In June, Megawitz returned to the studio to report some Italian locations he had found, but was not super eager to shoot in Egypt. By the end of the month, Skurris reversed his decision to bring Cleopatra back to Hollywood and agreed to let Megawitz shoot the film at Genetita in Rome, which was their biggest film studio at the time. During this cluster headache, some of the actors and crew left the project due to commitments made elsewhere. Peter Finch and Stephen Boyd, aka Caesar and Mark Antony, left the film due to scheduling and each were paid their remaining salaries. Rex Harrison, who was the studio's fourth choice to play the part of Julius Caesar, was then cast after the second and third choices said no. Mankiewicz suggested Marlon Brando for Mark Antony, which personally I would have loved to see, but the role would eventually go to Richard Burton after Elizabeth Taylor had seen him play King Arthur in the Broadway musical Camelot. 20th Century Fox paid Burton $250,000 plus $50,000 to buy him out of his contract on the musical. Roddy McDowell, who was also appearing in Camelot, was cast as Octavian, so they pretty much just scalped that cast. Shooting would pick back up again on September 25th, 1961, just shy of a year after shooting had first begun. Mankiewicz wanted it to be a two-part epic by this point, saying, quote, I had in my mind two separate but closely linked Elizabeth Taylor films, Caesar and Cleopatra and Antony and Cleopatra, each to run three hours, both segments to receive simultaneous release. By this time, Mankiewicz had completed 132 pages of the shooting script, with another 195 that remained to be written. Keep in mind, an average movie today is somewhere between 90 to 140, 150 pages or so. For the first few months, he filmed scenes during the day and wrote the script at night, resorting to amphetamine injections and wearing protective gloves because he contracted dermatitis in both hands doing this. Overwhelmed, in February 1962, Mankiewicz rehired McDougal to write several battle scenes and the final 50 pages of the second half of the script. On January 22, 1962, Taylor and Burton filmed their first scene together. Wenger observed in his journal, quote, There comes a time during the making of a movie when the actors become the characters they play. It was quiet, and you could almost feel the electricity between Liz and Burton. Within a month, news of their love affair made headlines worldwide. Both were married to other people, and their blatantly open affair brought bad publicity to the already troubled production. For more on this, check out my February 7th, 2021 episode on Elizabeth Taylor. By late May, most of the palace scenes were finished, but the remaining sequences, including two pivotal battle scenes, the arrival of Cleopatra and Tarsus, and Antony's confrontation with Octavian's legions, were not yet filmed because some of these sequences needed to be shot in Egypt, where the production had not gone yet. Back in California, 20th Century Fox had posted an annual loss for fiscal year 1961. Blame for this was landed at the looming production costs of Cleopatra. 
As a result, Skurris had to assure shareholders that he was preparing to take quote-unquote drastic measures to reduce expenditures, which included the cancellation of the Marilyn Monroe film Something's Got to Give, which had already entered production and was also having trouble with its star. They could not afford another sketchy production. Then shit really hit the fan. Between June 1st and 5th, Fox executives Peter Levathis, Otto Kogel, and Joseph Moskowitz, whom Wagner jokingly referred to as the Three Wise Men, arrived on the Cleopatra set and canceled the scheduled shoot of the Battle of Pharsalus, demanded that Taylor's salary be terminated on June 9th, and that all filming be halted by June 30th. On June 26th, 1962, however, Skurris announced his resignation as studio president, effective on September 30th. On July 25th, Daryl F. Zanuck, one of the founders of Fox, was elected as the new president of Fox, while Skurris was kept as chairman of the board. Zanuck then fired Levathis, replacing him with his son, Richard D. Zanuck. Principal photography was allowed to continue and mercifully ended on July 28th with the final location scenes in Egypt. All in all, filming had yielded 120 miles of film, which ended up becoming a 5-hour and 20-minute rough cut. In October 1962, Makowitz arranged a private screening of the film's rough cut in Paris for Zanuck. There, Zanuck officially rejected Mankiewicz's desire to distribute Cleopatra in two separate installments, believing audiences interested in the Taylor Burton love affair would not attend the first part. On October 20th, Mankiewicz sent a letter to Zanuck requesting, quote, an honest and unequivocal statement of where I stand in relation to Cleopatra. The next day, Zanuck issued a statement, quote, on completion of the dubbing, your official services will be terminated. If you are available and willing, I will call upon you to screen the re-edited version of the film. Conceding to the inevitable, Mankiewicz later told Newsweek, quote, I made the first cut, but after that, it's the studio's property. They could cut it up into banjo picks if they wanted. Zanuck then hired director Elmo Williams to see Cleopatra to the end of the line. Williams worked three consecutive 16-hour days at Fox's New York Film Lab and cut a total of 33 minutes from the original cut. On December 7th, the New York Times reported that Mankiewicz would rejoin the production after having a, quote, extreme Extremely constructive conference with Zanuck. Reshoots needed to be done, and Zanuck decided, I guess, that Mink was the guy to do it. Zanuck explained that he would, quote, bend over backwards artistically so that I wouldn't have to exercise my rights as president unless it became absolutely essential. Joe accepted that, took the scenes that I had blocked out crudely and roughly, went to work with them, and wrote them. With Mankiewicz reinstated as director, he partially restored several deleted sequences to his film. In February 1963, several members of the cast, along with 1,500 extras, were called back to reshoot the Battle of Pharsalus in Spain. After the location filming, Mankiewicz returned to London for eight consecutive days to reshoot new scenes with Burton. On March 5, 1963, filming was finally complete. All in all, Cleopatra cost about $44 million and was the most expensive film ever made at the time. The previous record holder, Ben-Hur, had only been about the third of the cost it had taken to make Cleopatra. The finished movie was nothing like what Mankiewicz had envisioned, so he was very unhappy. Also, in addition to firing Mankiewicz, Zanuck had also fired Wenger. Zanuck had taken the movie over again, making it into more of a crowd-pleaser. This whole mess eventually yielded a finished movie and Cleopatra premiered at the Rivoli Theater in New York City on June 12, 1963. 
an estimated 10,000 spectators were present for the premiere. Soon after the premiere, the film's running time was cut down from 244 minutes to 221 minutes. Two weeks after opening in New York, the film's release was expanded into 37 cities. For its general release in the United States, the film was cut once more down to 184 minutes. Critically, Cleopatra was pretty polarizing, with some calling it the greatest epic film ever made, and others slamming the film as unimpressive when considering all the drama that ensued during the film's production. The New York Times would estimate that while about 80% of the U.S. reviews were positive, this was only true of 20% in Europe. Box office-wise, Cleopatra made a disappointing $43 million, which was about $1 million short of breaking even, though the rule of thumb is generally three times what it costs to make, and by that scale, it failed spectacularly. This huge gamble that had cost many millions of dollars more money than had been planned had technically flopped, even though it was the biggest film of 1963. To recoup some more costs, Fox sold the television rights to the film to ABC for $5 million. At the end of the day, nobody who made Cleopatra liked it very much. Taylor later stated that the film was quote-unquote vulgar. Mankiewicz recalled that the film was quote, conceived in a state of emergency, shot in confusion, and wound up in a blind panic. Mankiewicz's career would go on, but never really recovered from making this movie. Wanger, on the other hand never produced another film. Taylor and Burton divorced their spouses for each other and then married and divorced each other twice. Everyone involved in the movie sued everybody else involved in the movie. The studio blamed Taylor and Burton's scandalous love affair while shooting for the film suffering at the box office since by the time Cleopatra released, the public was sick and tired of hearing about the duo. During all this, Cleopatra got nominated for nine Oscars, including Best Picture, and would eventually win four. In the end, the making of Cleopatra was an epic tale. Unfortunately, it wasn't the one they'd set out to make. While 1963's Cleopatra is now considered a Hollywood classic, it was a long, hellish road getting that film on screens. But what on that screen was historical fact, and what was Hollywood fiction? Use that Roman genius for destruction. Tear down pyramids, wipe out cities. How dare you and the rest of your barbarians set fire to my library. Play conqueror all you want, mighty Caesar. Rape, murder, pillage, thousands, millions of human beings. But neither you nor any other barbarian has the right to destroy one human thought. Historically, most of the events depicted in the film, like the battles and the general timeline and Cleopatra's relationships with Caesar and Mark Antony, are pretty much history accurate as far as what can be definitively known about these people's lives. So Mankiewicz was pretty thorough in that respect. For example, he even included the fact that Cleopatra had what the ancient Egyptians referred to as the falling sickness, which today is known as epilepsy. However, there are many things added to the film to boost up the plot and the romance of the film, but everything that was kind of happened historically that we know of is pretty much preserved. Most of the glaring things that are incorrect in the film historically are design choices. Where should we start? How about the costumes? They were so gorgeous and opulent that the film took home the best costume Oscar after all. Surely those must have been historically accurate. Well, they weren't. 
Well, the ancient Egyptians were known for their flashy bling, and Cleopatra certainly has a ton of it. It is a very, very, very fancy movie. Cleopatra's costumes are more indicative of 1960s fashion than ancient Egyptian fashion. It's especially apparent in the cuts of her gowns. The usage of wigs was worked into the film as well, which ancient Egyptians did use, but again, the wigs were also styled in more 1960s fashion instead of historical accuracy. Many busts of Cleopatra show her with short wavy hair, not medium or long length, as is more prevalent in the film. The cat eye makeup that you've seen in a lot of movies about ancient Egypt is actually accurate. Ancient Egyptians painted their eyelids not just to look real pretty, but to also protect them against eye infections. Both men and women wore green eye paint and black coal. This eye makeup was also believed to have a magical role within ancient Egyptian culture. Bacterial eye infections were common along the Nile, and the chemicals used in the eye makeup were known to stimulate the immune system and protect them from catching these infections. While Cleopatra's extravagant entrance into Rome did happen, it wasn't quite like what the film depicts. In the 2010 Pulitzer Prize-winning book Cleopatra, A Life, author Stacey Schiff describes the reality as, quote, She reclined beneath a gold-spangled canopy, dressed as Venus in a painting, while beautiful young boys like painted cupids stood at her sides and fanned her. Her fairest maids were likewise dressed as sea nymphs and graces, some staring at the rudder, some working at the ropes, wondrous odors from countless incense offerings diffused themselves along the riverbanks. Her entrance into Rome is similar, but not quite the same. In the film, it's still a sensational entrance, though not on the river, and it included dozens of horses, pan-African dancers, ceremonial opening of dove-filled pyramids, as one does, a burlesque performer with jeweled nipples, and Cleopatra herself decked out from head to toe in gold, sitting between the paws of a big ol' sphinx. Different entrance, but the same message is conveyed. This is one badass fancy lady. It's what isn't mentioned in the film that is the bigger sins of omission. Stacey Schiff actually argues many long-held beliefs about Cleopatra are not actually true. She argues that Cleopatra was a political mastermind, not just the temptress with reckless ambition as she is so often portrayed. None of Cleopatra's writings have survived to the modern day, and her historical presence as it primarily survives today was written by individuals whom had never met her personally and were basing their knowledge purely on anecdotes. Further, it is believed that Cleopatra was highly educated and spoke as many as a dozen languages, and that never really comes up in the film or really anywhere, to be honest. A 9th century poet named Al-Masudi mentioned in his writing that Cleopatra wrote several books about medicine and other fields of science. It was Roman propaganda that labeled Cleopatra as the sinful woman. But in Arabic sources, Cleopatra is described as a strong monarch who actually protected Egypt and, gasp, was good at her job? But, you know, leave it to a bunch of ancient dudes to focus on the fact that she was so hot that two people that were supposed to be leading Rome couldn't keep it in their pants. From the sounds of it, she was just smart enough to manipulate them based on that fact. Lastly, the one thing that is treated like common knowledge, but is not actually common knowledge because it might not be accurate, is how Cleopatra died. The bite of an asp is the prevailing story. We've all heard it. But according to Greek and Roman historians, Cleopatra likely poisoned herself using a toxic ointment by introducing the poison with a sharp instrument such as a hairpin into her bloodstream. Also, details of her funeral are not known, and again, her tomb has never been found. 
There will be another remake of Cleopatra, which is coming sometime in the next few years, and it will be starring Wonder Woman's Gal Gadot. Some controversy has drummed up about this casting choice with some claiming that this is Hollywood whitewashing. In reality, y'all, Cleopatra, though a famous Egyptian figure, was actually Greek, not Egyptian. As I've said several times in the episode, by this point in the kingdom's history, it had been conquered by Alexander the Great, and the Macedonian Greek Ptolemy, from whom Cleopatra descends directly, took control of the kingdom after Alexander's death in 323 BCE. Before you take to Twitter and yell about it like many other people already have, remember, Cleopatra was not Egyptian, she was Greek. While Gal Gadot is neither, she's Israeli, it's not as far off genealogically compared to, I don't know, a British-American woman playing the part. The more you know. Cleopatra, the last real pharaoh of ancient Egypt, was an illustrious temptress, yes. But she also had a brilliant mind and incredible, ruthless military prowess. And the next time you feel like undertaking this monstrous beast of a movie instead of reading a book about Cleopatra, good news. It's close enough to write your paper. Just make sure you do some cursory fact-checking. Class dismissed. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory. You can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I hope this sound sounded good this week. There were a lot of weird street noises, so I'm sorry if this week sounded funky. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you could help me out in any way, I would very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check that out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're going into the life of William Wallace and the Academy Award-winning film Braveheart. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.